As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and you will get up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. One, download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. Two, deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. Three, you will receive up to $1,500 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer, BetMGM.com for terms and conditions and must be 21 or older to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-369. 5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, and 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,500 first bet offer today. everybody's thanksgiving was awesome and now we're back with a teensy bit of baseball news i was ready to open the show with like hey arm what happened in the baseball world i saw yamamoto was at a laker game and then mike trout was getting soaked in the rain of that eagles bills game in overtime yesterday which was a great game by the way uh but now we've got kenta maeda and i forgot we had to hit on that eugenio suarez trade that took him from seattle to arizona and we are going to start with our season in review and we're incorporating mgm lines bet mgm put out you know win totals for every team in major league baseball we picked those like two days before the season started we're going to revisit that see where teams finished there as always presented by betmgm jack and aram how was uh thanksgiving i know like we can't we can get into the holiday of thanksgiving if we want but um i know it was a really quiet last like five days in the on the baseball front yeah you know it was interesting because we were getting that recording in like just before the holiday uh peter and i did that on on wednesday and then we put it out on wednesday and legitimately the second we hit like stop on the record button that Suarez trade went down and I'm like watch nothing else is going to happen for the rest of the time until we record again fortunately this Maeda deal went through like a little bit before we hit record so uh that that part of it is interesting I, I do think that there's almost like this uh, this agreement that just you're not going to bother other teams too much or agents too much over over the Thanksgiving time, even though these these folks are psycho usually, uh, when it, whether it's front office folks or or agents. But I think there's almost just this agreement to just lay low, and I feel like things are going to really get popping next week because we got 
the winter meetings right around the corner. And then, of course, on the other side of the holiday. But Thanksgiving was nice, you know, with nothing happening. It was even easier to put the phone down for a little bit and just know, hey, you're probably not missing anything. Enjoy family, watch some football. And uh, it's exactly what I did. Can I say the college football on Friday and Saturday was freaking excellent. Yes. I had a great Friday and Saturday and the NFL on Sunday has been pretty solid too. Um, I spent Thanksgiving in the DR. That was like tail end. I flew back on Thursday and I, I'm telling you guys, if you do get the opportunity, go do that at some point, the Dominican winter league light him. That yeah. was so much fun. I hit four games. I went to La Romana for Toros del Este, and I saw Ronnie Simon, the Rays prospect, and Yermin Mercedes in the same lineup. Um, after that, I saw two games in Santo Domingo. I saw the Tigres de Licey. Um, Miguel Andujar was on that team. Francisco Mejia was on that team. Um, I then saw Jose Ramirez make his Lightem season debut with yeah. Leones de Escogido, which was amazing. And then went to San Pedro de Macariz to see Estrellas, which was so much fun. Um, Miguel Sano was in that lineup. I saw Junior Lake play down there. But Junior dude, Lake. like y- you roll up to the ticket office at 9 a.m. the morning that you want to go to the game. You you wait in the line. You buy the tickets. Um, then you come back and it's either that or you get burned by scalpers. But still, it's like very funny. Um and there's live bands for every game and the baseball's good and tell you what in like that weird lull of pre Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving where there was no baseball news. And the biggest thing we got to talk about is Gino Suarez going to Arizona. That was like the best thing I could have done to scratch my baseball itch. I had a great I, time and I highly recommend anybody that can do it should do it. Hey, you got that junior Caminero homer. Yeah, uh, you, I did see Caminero. That was awesome. I was going to say this, that's the only place I think, on earth that you're going to be able to get junior Caminero and Neftali Feliz in the same ball game. I, I would have said that until we got this Saudi league. Now it's like any nostalgic name you want, you, you're going to get that thrown in there uh, with, with whatever this, this, this sport is. Uh, but uh, that side of it's fun too. I mean, for those sickos that really can't wait to have baseball back, you can go watch Bartolo Colon, get Robinson Cano to roll out to second base, like or, and, you can or, watch- or hit a six run Homer. Yeah, or you can watch Pablo Sandoval hit a six-run homer, which was yeah. crazy. And the strike zone was very favorable to Big Sexy, I will say. I was the weirdo that woke, that woke up and did watch that game. Well, the craziest thing is is Pablo Sandoval is in better shape for – what is it? What is this called again? It's Baseball, baseball Un- United. And it's United, like okay, that's Dubai what I thought. League, yeah. He's in better shape for Baseball United than he was like in year one of his – $50 million contract with the Red Sox. Or was it more than that? I don't even remember what that deal was. I think it was, like it was more. Was it like 80? Was it 100? I thought it was 80 or 90, maybe 100. I'm outing myself on this one. I didn't even remember. I just remember it being bad. I didn't remember how much it was, and I just remembered him not finishing that contract. They went Pablo through a Sam. crazy stretch where it was horrible deal for Hanley Ramirez, horrible deal for Pablo Sandoval, and then the Rusny Castillo deal before he even debuted. How about the Crawford, Carl Crawford deal? Yeah, that was not. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez, the Dodgers bailed them out of a, a, a couple of those. Um, I'm going to try to dig up what that contract. Oh, five years, 95. Goodness gracious. Yeah. It was worse than I thought it was. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's in better shape than he was for that deal. Um, he's only 37. It's crazy. He's got absolutely time, crazy. Man. He totally has time. Um, Gino Suarez, let's jump into that right now. That was a fun deal that went down on Wednesday. And do you have the the exact return for Eugenio Suarez? 
Um, yeah, I can get that to you in one second here. Yeah, it's Suarez from Seattle to Arizona. And I like it because, you know, Evan Longoria was a great stopgap this year, and he was so important. And we've heard Walker Bueller say, you know, hey, you know, they may not be in the position they were in the World Series if not for Evan Longoria's, you know, maybe clubhouse presence. Yeah. Um, Suarez is better than Longoria in 2024 and in 2023. This guy was a salary dump from Cincinnati. He goes to Seattle. He hits a billion home runs, and he's going to go and be a middle-of-the-order power threat for a team that did lack that at points this year. I know they went to the World Series, but this team hardly snuck in, and they they get a good bat to play a serviceable third base. Yeah, and they parted with Sebi Zavala, the catcher, who's going to just kind of swat in a backup catcher, replace that Tom Murphy role for the Mariners. And then Carlos Vargas is the intriguing guy. He's a, a younger, hard-throwing arm, twenty, just turned twenty-four years old. That, and I think they're they're hoping they can. You know, the Mariners are hoping they can maybe turn into you know a high-leverage bullpen arm. He can run it to triple digits frequently. Sits like ninety-eight, ninety-nine, heavy fastball. So I think that's that's the intrigue. But it was mostly a salary dump, quote unquote, on the Mariners end, which is interesting because it's just $11 million. Um, it, it makes sense for both sides, though, because we saw the Mariners, they recently went out and got Arias. I don't think that he's going to be able to replace that production. I know Suarez wasn't awesome, but I think he you know, can give you a little bit more than what you got last year, especially now going to Arizona, and I'll get to that in a second. But if they don't, I, I'm assuming the Mariners are positioning themselves and reshuffling some money around to be able to, I, I guess, commit money to another position, another area. But if you're swapping out Suarez for Arias, who they just got from the Red Sox, that's that's not great. You know, wh- where is this money going is kind of the, the, the question because and I know they're not just cutting payroll. I feel like this is a reshuffling of of financial assets. Yeah. So my first thought when that happened was I <laughs> I have a soft spot for Luis Arias. I don't know why, but I was like, oh, Luis Arias. This guy's been DFA'd twice at this point. Um, so you cannot roll him out as your opening day third baseman. My first thought for Seattle was, okay, they're positioning themselves for a go at one of Matt Chapman or Jamer Candelario. And I still think that's going to happen. I would lean Candelario for Seattle because I think they made want to make several moves and they don't have frankly the the funds and the and the space to make two big ticket moves and Chapman looks like a big ticket move. Yeah. No, it looks like he's going to be nine figs. <laughs> it's insane. And like Chapman's a fascinating one based on the tea leaves that I've kind of gathered on Cubs Twitter um and just news Twitter in general. Have you seen the Bichette thing? I think if they don't go and trade for Bichette, they sign Chapman and a pitcher. Like the Cubs are going to spend huge in the next week and a half or two weeks. Yeah. I feel yeah, very I, strongly about that. I agree. And my mind went immediately to, to Candelario too. I figured Chapman, a same same thing, kind of not in that price range for them. Yeah. Uh, Candelario is not going to be cheap either, but it's more in their range. And if they cleared out that 11 for, for next year, you know they can backload the contract a little bit too if they wanted to. I think that makes sense. So for, for the Mariners, it's it's a wait and see. I expect them. They're always busy, right? Jerry Depoto loves to trade. Uh, so they, they could make another trade. They could end up being, being, I think they could be positioning themselves to take on 
a contract that maybe isn't terrible, uh, but isn't the most financially desirable. And maybe that's a way that they can work out an acquisition for another position. So there's a few different ways that they could approach it. And I think just trading Suarez gives them ability, the ability to do that. Uh, and then the tie a bow on, on the Diamondbacks point, you know, I think Suarez is somebody that could end up really enjoying a nice little uptick in his, in his offensive production, just getting out of Seattle. I know his home road splits were pretty consistent uh, for, for the most part, I, I, but you know, actually kind of reverse, which is weird. He actually hit better at home, but I just think in general, you get him in Arizona, he's going to be playing more, you know, in Colorado. And I think that's something that's just going to bode well for him. So as a guy that drives the ball in the air, I, I think it was probably good to just change a scenery kind of guy for him. So I, I'm, I'm excited to see what Suarez does out there at just 32 years old. If it doesn't work out, it's just a one year, $11 million deal. And if you look at the free agent market, I'd sign Suarez for that in two seconds because everybody else is going to get more than that. Yeah. Did you see the Diamondbacks ticket plan that they put out? Yeah. Dude, $299 for all 81 home games. A team that just went to the World Series, you can go see them for $3.70 a game. That's the best deal I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, that was like, that was one of those where I was like, what's the catch? There's got to be some sort of catch. Where's the catch? But there's not. Is it an like okay a nosebleed? I'll pay three seventy for a nosebleed, no problem. Yeah, that's that's one of the best deals in baseball. I, I hope Diamondbacks fans show out because the team's fun. They earned it, and, and they're making some moves, right? It's not the the biggest deal in the world, but they're adding to the payroll, and I think they're going to make more moves. So I think this is just one of the first things uh, that they're going to do, and I think there's more to come. Who did they lose on a team that just went to the World Series? You know what I mean, like. This, yeah. this team has the ability to continue to level up. Um, man, if I was living in Phoenix, I would just split it with another person. I'll be like, hey, each of us drop 150 on this and I'll go to 40 games and you go to yeah. 40 games. That's crazy. Amazing. That's It's a no brainer. It, it's almost like my my Miami Hurricanes. They can't get anybody to show up to the football games. It's like buy one, get two free. You split that with somebody. You've got like, You've got like three tickets to every game now uh, yeah. for the price of like nothing. So it, there, there's some teams that are just willing to do that because they just want to get you in the door. And I get that. And hopefully people go in the door. Uh, they need to renovate that stadium that the roof doesn't even properly work. <laughs> and I know that's a whole thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited for the future out there. And, and, and hopefully fans will take advantage of that deal. Yeah, uh, we're going to get to the season grades in a moment for NL East teams. But first, Kenta Maeda to Detroit, two years, $24 million. Heyman had it first, 35-year-old Kenta Maeda. And Passin, I, I think, added some good color to it in his you know tweet, kind of breaking the Kenta Maeda news. Um, the Tigers have been, what did he say exactly, all over the mid-level pitching market. Detroit has been all over mid-tier pitching, and the 35-year-old Maeda stays in the American League Central. Yeah. Who is Kenta Maeda in 2024? I saw that the physical is today, is Monday. That's going to be a really intriguing physical. I'm curious what comes of it. If Kenta Maeda can give them 140 innings at a high threes, it's absolutely worth it. I just wonder if that's still in the cards for Kenta Maeda. What do you think? I think it can be, man. I, I thought he looked pretty darn good this past year. Just being healthy and being back. Like, there was a couple starts here and there that weren't the best, but in terms of just kind of inflating the ERA, you had a couple blow up outings, one 
particularly against the Yankees, where I think it was like his third or fourth start back. He gives up 10 earned runs. But other than that, I mean, he was pretty consistent and pretty good. And you look at the the end of season line. I mean, you, you take that for what, what the cost is presumably going to be, assuming he passes a physical. You know, four two three ERA in 104 innings. He punched out more than 10 per nine, walked just 2.4 per nine. Like, that'll play. And what's interesting to me is this guy's become more and more of a fly ball pitcher. And, and this past season was, I think, more of a fly ball pitcher than he's ever been. Only a 32.6% ground ball rate. You put him now in Comerica, that bodes really well, right? He's going to just be able to get away with a lot more uh, and and not, not give up nearly as many home runs. That was the one thing that kind of bit him even last year with some success. 104 innings, uh, he gave up 17 bombs. The last time we saw him in 2021, very similar, 106 innings, give up 16 bombs. So if he's able to cut that down a little bit, that ERA gets to the high threes, which is what a lot of the underlying numbers had him at anyways. Expected ERA, 377, FIP at four flat, X FIP below four. Yep. This could be a sneaky good signing. Two-year deal too, so you have some time that maybe by 2025, you're competitive. If not, and he's throwing well, you can trade him with another year of control at a pretty low AAV. If your team's not playing well, you can cash in and, and get probably a decent return for Maeda. We saw how, how surprising sometimes the market is, even for these guys on you know in their mid thirties if they're throwing well. Yeah, it was relieving to see two years twenty four. I thought it was going to be something like two years with a three as the front number. Like if it was two years thirty four, two years thirty five, I would you know tense up a little bit and say, "Ooh, are, are we sure Maeda is worth that much?" But Two for 24, that feels very Mark Melanson-y. And we saw Arizona do that. They would sign these guys. They would flip them at the deadline. Um, and I think a two-year deal is way easier to convince a team uh, than just a one-year rental. And it you know helps you return tenfold. Maeda, I think it's funny. I was just looking at the AL Cy Young voting in 2020. I know a long time ago. But Maeda finished second behind Shane Bieber. But... AL Cy Young voting in 2020 went Bieber, Maeda, Hyunjin Ryu, Garrett Cole, Dallas Keuchel, Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito. What a weird fever dream of a year. Is Maeda going to finish second in Cy Young voting? Absolutely not. I just wonder, he threw, what, 104 innings this year? Yeah. What's the max inning output? Is it 140? Is it 110? I don't know. I hope it's 140. Yeah, you know, that's a great question because we saw a different Maeda last year. Nate Maeda, in terms of pitch usage and stuff like that, I mean, he threw a split finger more than pretty much anything else. I mean, he threw a splitter, if you look at Savant, 32% of the time, which when we saw him in 2021, he was throwing that splitter, I think around 20-something, 25 26% of the time. But the difference was he was mixing in a lot of different pitches. Like, it's it was really splitter, slider, four-seamer. Those three, that's all you're getting. And, and a lot of stuff high high in the zone. So I think it's interesting uh, the, the way he's kind of tackling it and the way he's he's pitching in terms of his usage. I don't know if it's conducive to 180 innings, 190 when you're throwing your splitter more than any other pitch. But, you know, we, we've seen some guys rely on one to two pitches that aren't fastballs heavily and, and have success. But at his age with the history at this point, I think you're, you're gunning for 140. And if you get that at $12 million – I mean, that, that, that's a no-brainer. How do you feel about this on opening day? Tarek Skubal, Kenta Maeda, Matt Manning, Reese Olsen, Casey Mize. <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, like, it's not it's not bad. 
there's there's a level of intrigue there. But, it, you know, I think Maeda adds some much needed consistency because you can have some blow up starts from some of those guys. You don't know what you're going to get from Casey Mize. Matt Manning is is a roller coaster ride. Scoobles great when he's on the field, but he's been banged up. So yeah. I think just being able to have somebody that you can pencil in for a low fours, you're hoping high threes. I feel decent about that rotation because it does have the potential to be pretty good. If yeah. Manning looks like he looked, you know, through his good stretches that we saw and Scooble is the Tarek Scooble we know he can be. And, and if you get anything from Casey Mize, if he's a four or a five, I mean, that rotation is is fine. We saw some good things from Reese Olsen. I, I thought the rest of the rotation surprised this past season in, in some ways. And you've got some really strong bullpen pieces too. Alex Lang was, you know, a, a really strong closer this year. But you know, you got a Will Vest and a Tyler Holton was great, and a Jason Foley was good too. So th- there's enough to be excited about. And I think Maeda, you're right. It it almost like calms the water a little yeah. bit when I assume we're going to get some high tide in Detroit this year. Um, that's off of Lake Erie, I think Lake Erie. I don't know. I'm a Midwest guy. I got to know the Great Lakes. Okay, back half of the episode devoted to the National League East win totals. We're revisiting and we're kind of going through a season in review. But before that, a quick break. Here's how we're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to give you the preseason win total that was given to these teams by BetMGM. I'm going to give you their end of season win total. Um, if you want to calculate the difference, you can. I'm going to try and do it off the dome. I feel like it's going to be somewhat Whoa. easy. Well, yeah, that'd be impressive, man. Subtraction. That'd um, be impressive. But we're going to cite why they went over, why they went under. I was thinking maybe we do letter grades on the season. We can kind of decide if we want. I feel like that will be a little tough. Um, yeah, and I was almost our- thinking. Yeah. I was almost thinking like at the end we almost can highlights superlatives in terms of who was the most surprising, you know, who was the most disappointing. Cause it's so hard to dish out a letter grade because it's going to be dependent on expectations and expectations were kind of subjective. I know we're mentioning the line, so it could be, then it's almost the opposite. Then it's not subjective at all because you're basing it just on how far they off they were off from their preseason over under win total. So I feel like just maybe highlighting who the biggest surprise was, who the biggest disappointment was, and then, Anything in between probably it makes it the easiest. Yeah. And I was thinking like, okay, it, it gets a little complex, especially when you look at a team like Tampa, where everybody dropped to injury. Like they lost their entire yeah. starting rotation. Yeah. And Wander Franco, obviously you had shit hit the fan there, but they still, you know, greatly overperformed. So do they get a better letter grade? Than yeah, exactly. More it hurts my brain. The division? It's really hard. So let's jump in with Atlanta. This was very easy. The Atlanta Braves, um, their win total before the year was set at 95 and a half. They were expected to win the division. They were nine wins better than that. They won 104 games this year. Each of the three of us had the over 95 and a half. So a clean sweep on our end golf clap for us. Thank you very much. Just a couple quick notes on the Atlanta Braves. The LA Dodgers are the second highest team OPS in baseball at 795. The Braves were at 845. They were 50 points better than any other team in baseball. The Dodgers had the most or had the second most team homers in baseball, 249. So no other team in baseball, aside from the Atlanta Braves, was over 250. The Braves were at 307. 
So more than 50 home runs, 58 more home runs than the next best team in baseball. They did all this with Freed and Kyle Wright combining for 21 starts. Freed had a two and a half in 77 innings. Kyle Wright had a seven in 31 innings. What Atlanta did with so many questions in the starting pitching department and relying on Jared Schuster and Dylan Dodd, who both drastically underperformed this year. I mean, like, it's hard for me to point to why they did it, but I could just say Acuna and Riley and Olsen and Albies and Harris and Arcia and Murphy. Like, it's everybody with the stick. It's Rysel Iglesias. It's Pierce Johnson after the deadline. I mean, dude, like, everything went right for this team. You missed you missed their best player. Uh Forrest Wall slashed 462, 533, 846 mm-hmm. in 15 plate appearances. How many bags? Oh. How many bags? He had he had five bags. Yeah, he's fast <laughs> as shit. I, I bet you that I, I don't have the fan graphs page up. I have the, the whole Braves uh re- reference table up, but I'd venture to say that was probably like 0.8 war, F war there. I'll tell you something right close now. to that. That's a crazy 15 plate appearances by, by Forrest wall. <laughs> he also had a Homer uh, and a couple doubles, but no j- jokes aside. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with them slugging their way, you know, to, to success, but I don't think people realize that like how much they slugged to overcome a lot of pitching challenges. Like you mentioned, because I think the Braves were so good all the time that we almost forgot how much adversity they went through. On the mound, and I think it's fair to say that they went through plenty of adversity on the mound. You have Spencer Strider for the whole season. That's great. You have Bryce Elder for the whole season, who you didn't even think you were going to be counting on. We we were kind of assuming he'd have one of the back end of the rotation spots and see what happens. We didn't think he'd end up being uh, their pretty much most reliable starter at some points and, you know, ending up being the, the guy who made the second most starts for them. But you only had 14 starts out of Max Freed. And then you mentioned... Schuster and Dodd both being duds for them, I think was was the like a worst case scenario. And if you told me going into the season, hey, you know, Freed's only going to make 14 starts and Schuster and Dodd are going to be unusable. Like they're going to combine for a near 70 RA in 18 starts. I'd be like, oh shoot, the, the Phillies won the division. You know, like I would not believe that it worked out the way it worked out. I mean, we're talking about fast-tracking a 19-year-old, the newly-turned-20-year-old prospect and A.J. Smith-Shaver to the big leagues to help tread water at points. Alan Winnins made six starts. Michael Soroka had to be like shoehorned into the rotation and and really struggled and wasn't even really looking that great at points in, in AAA. Like, they had to piece it all together and try to figure it out. Um, and, and I think it's pretty remarkable that they were able to just hit their way through this these challenges and piece it together on the mound. It's a testament to Anthopolis and it's a testament to the team. I know they disappointed, but from a regular season perspective, uh, they, they they were as impressive as we've seen in a while, all things considered. I'll be honest. They did what I was expecting the Blue Jays to do this year, where there were starting pitching questions, mm-hmm. but the offense was going to thrive like no other offense in baseball. And that's what Atlanta did. Like I was not anticipating starting pitching questions coming into the year. Um, Freed has been finicky the last like I don't it always kind of seems like there's something up, especially this year. There were there were a bunch of different flare ups and I'm a little worried. And it's always kind of been in the back of my mind, like, hey, why have they not extended Max Freed? There's there's something there, man. There's because something. there 
there's no reason. Like, I, I, they must not have a ton of confidence in his ability to to stay on the field, as as you're kind of alluding to, right? Because again, he was he was awesome, two five five ERA in in those fourteen starts. But yeah, he just just continues to have all these little nagging injuries here and there, and you wonder the the team that is just so quick to give a Spencer Strider a pre arb deal, yeah. uh, and and I know it's cheaper than what it would have costed to to extend Freed, but at the same time. It wouldn't have been that crazy with the years of control with Freed being a later bloomer, right? He's he's already set to hit free agency pretty late. I think he would have been fine with guaranteeing money now and 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 giving up some years on the back end and just making that his one big big league contract. It's interesting that they haven't done it yet, and I'm I think this is going to be a really big year for him in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think it's mostly just can I show that I can throw 180 200 innings again because we've seen that in the past. But um, yeah, with a healthy Max Freed alongside Spencer Strider, I felt like we didn't get to see that Batman and Robin, right? And and see almost if it could be Batman and Batman. We never really got to see that consecutively. And that's terrifying on one side of things in terms of if you're the rest of the NL East, but it's also frustrating on the other side of things. If, you, if you're a Braves fan or just someone that wanted to see what this team could look like if it's clicking on all cylinders. For sure. Um, last thing on the Braves, how valid do you think the idea is that they're going big fish hunting after that? you know, bummer for five guys thing. I don't think it's totally valid. I think Nola was probably the guy that they wanted. And we know that they extended a, a pretty hefty sum to Aaron Nola and he took a little bit less money to stay in Philly. I just, I wonder what the fits like for a Blake Snell or for a Stroman. Like, does that make them that much better? Snell would obviously, but I don't, they're not in the Yamamoto sweepstakes. It doesn't seem like it's just it's tough for me to think that they're going to shell out 150 million dollars for a pitcher this year. Yeah, you know, I wanted to talk myself into that, and, I, and I'm I'm not counting them out of Yamamoto, which in, in most years I would fully just be like they're not doing that. I think if, if they were in on Nola for that price, I think they'll try to to get Yamamoto probably for somewhere around the 200 mark, and then someone's just going to beat that, right? Like someone's just going to give more than that. Right. But I could see a Sunny Gray or somebody like that being of interest. A lot of sense. Because you have Ozuna for and, and Ozuna now all of a sudden it isn't amazing that the fluidity of the sport where Ozuna is this immovable contract that we were talking about. Like, do you even swap that for Avi Garcia? Like, would the Marlins even do that? Like, that was something that was discussed, you know, and, and that's crazy. Uh, and now it's like, oh, he hit forty home runs and eighteen million dollars a year is, is, is a fine deal. Uh, they have a team option for twenty twenty five for sixteen million on Ozuna, and like, there is a non zero chance that gets picked up. It, again, just shows you the fluidity of of contracts and and just the sport in general. But after that, you know that that's a lot of money coming off the books, and all the other their other deals are mostly pre arb and you know never getting that high in average annual value. I do wonder if they surprise us with just one big contract, uh, knowing that they don't really have any others looming for a little bit. But I, I think they end up just kind of collecting a bunch of other surprising or sneaky good additions, right? Like people see the rosters spots getting opened up, and they're like, oh. They're swinging for the fences. Heck, man, they might just go get a Michael Brantley, and and that's a good move, right? That's that's a guy that sneaks in and is is a good piece for them, and is much more valuable for a win now Braves on the forty man roster than a Braden Shoemake. That's that's kind of where I see it. I feel like they're just opening up spots for all of these really solid role player veterans, and then maybe their their big fish is a Sonny Gray. If they do that, I think we're going to be talking about the Braves the same way next year, and it's just going to be a matter of health. What do you think a Sonny Gray deal looks like? I close my eyes and I see three for 65. I think he gets more years than you think. 
really. What is he? What what is he now? Thirty three. I think he's thirty four. Me thirty four. I think he finagles a fourth year out of there. I, I do. You think he gets four years eighty? At, at least he might get more than that, man. He just and turned thirty four. Just turned thirty four. I could see like four years ninety. I would 95. love ninety five. Okay. Yeah, I listen. Sonny would be a great Atlanta Brave. I I think everybody knows that, so it would be a very fun one. Um, the Mets, <laughs> the Mets have the <laughs> second highest win total in the National League East coming into the year. MGM had it at ninety two and a half. They had seventy five wins. So, doing the math, that's seventeen shy of expectations. Uh, I don't need to sit here and say. You know, oh, like Pete Alonzo, you know, had an 820 OPS. He was slightly disappointing. No, that cat had, what, 40 homers, drove in 120. He was not disappointing. Lindor had a 30-30 season. Mo was awesome. Kodai Senga was awesome. It was simply the back of the rotation. The I could argue that the back of the Mets rotation was the worst back of a rotation that we had in baseball this year. Peterson, Carrasco, McGill were horrible and then a couple of offensive guys jump out but to revisit it you had the over peter had the over i had the under 90 i I was wondering why you had such a voice inflection as you're right but to 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 revisit it but i had a feeling that that was the case but i win you lose and i win um yes my my offensive disappointments here and and tell me if i'm missing anybody McNeil was the biggest one by far. Jeff McNeil had an objectively bad year for that guy, fresh off an extension. Yep. The other two for me were Beatty and Vientos. Yep. I needed those guys to be better, mm-hmm. and they were not. Eduardo Escobar, we knew Eduardo Escobar was a sitting duck in this lineup. I wanted yeah. Beatty over him on opening day. But, man, I- like getting so little production from Beatty and Vientos hurt. I – I felt like the the Beatty disappointment compounded to Eduardo Escobar being a disappointment because Escobar was really only a disappointment because Beatty was that it, it caused you to have to demand or or ask for more from Escobar. So that side of it was was is extremely disappointing. I think the fact that Beatty was unusable uh, is is something that they were not prepared for and i was not prepared for <laughs> that was something i did not expect yeah. francisco alvarez was great you get a rookie catcher hitting at 25 bombs and playing decent defense and, and i know that batting average wasn't there i don't really care he's a 21 year old rookie catcher put up a 721 ops like, i'll take that i'd go Beatty as disappointment number one for me also really? as just a prospect guy mcneil all things considered with the extension and everything very disappointing too but at the same time you know, with that same notion, if everything else was working, McNeil within a 7-11 OPS playing all over the diamond, you're not like, oh my gosh, get this guy out of the lineup. Starling Marte was, oh my gosh, get this guy out of the lineup. And I'll, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, given that he had double groin surgery. And I don't even dream of of knowing what that feels like and how difficult that is to come back from, because I feel like I need double groin surgery after my uh, flag football game, game. I pay. like every time I get out of a chair, I feel it on both sides. I can't imagine trying to play through that. And he obviously just wasn't right. But that was a guy that was one of the worst hitters in Major League Baseball with no defensive value. And his speed no longer was a factor. I mean, he was just patently unusable. Yeah. Have you heard the Filipowski thing? Kyle Filipowski at Duke, men's basketball. He had double hip surgery. 
he had both of his hips shaved down this past summer. Like, I can't believe that. That sounds yeah. so painful. So a double groin, a double hip. I'm just like, how do you move? And he yeah. said there was like a two, three week stretch where he couldn't like get up off the couch and make sense. He had double hip surgery. Holy shit. Um, yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. I mean, Marte was really bad. Vientos, were you expecting more or were you kind of like, hey, I'm I'm moving closer to out than in on Vientos you know, as an impact bat? I, I always liked him as a prospect, too. Um, and so I definitely was. And, and I still think he can be a, a solid platoon power bat. But I just felt like with Vientos, you weren't really counting on him to, I think, have a central role like Beatty. And I think that was the big reason why I thought Beatty was a disappointment on a different level. Like Vientos, you were expecting to maybe hit some lefties and uh, plug in here and there and, and be a solid bench power bat or or short end of the platoon. With Beatty, it was like, this guy's going to be our, our everyday third baseman. At the very least, we're just going to shelter him from lefties and let Escobar take those. And it just wasn't that. And then, you know, them paying Marte what they did. Uh, and I there was... Obviously, the Marlins wanted Marte back. There was apprehension to give him those extra years because of the the injuries that he's dealt with. And uh, I was surprised that the Mets went that route. But I also was I like the deal because it's Marte's just a great player. But with guys like Marte, it declines quickly, right? It, it, it goes from a hundred to to zero pretty quickly. I'm hoping that he can find a way to to get back. But they're saying he might need you know another similar type of procedure. I don't see him magically getting his legs back under him at 35 you know, with all of this considered. I think Dan Vogelbach was a really frustrating player for Mets fans this year, and, and understandably so. They expected way more from Dan Vogelbach than I think they uh, should have. And, and I know hindsight's 2020, but I mean, a Vogelbach-Vientos platoon in the DH role, again, I thought Vientos would be better, but I thought Vogelbach being the, the bulk of that platoon meaning that he's going to be facing the righties. I thought that he was a massive failure for them too, because that's just, that's not only a a guy that only put up a 742 OPS with no value outside of the bat, the DH spots valuable. You look at the average OPS by position. DH is the highest usually for a reason. Yeah. Because they're paid to do that. They're literally paid to OPS. Um, If he was Rowdy Telez, I think Mets fans are very happy, but he was, Far worse than Rowdy Teles. No. Um, and both of them were non-tendered, by the way. Peterson, McGill, and Carrasco at the back of that rotation were thrusted into way more starts than I think Billy Epler was expecting them to make. Um, you were assuming full health for Verlander. You were assuming full health for Scherzer. That didn't happen prior to the trades. Jose Quintana was not healthy at the start of the year. And Quintana did look decent enough when he came back. Sanga was awesome again. That's four. So you've got Peterson or McGill or Carrasco filling in that final spot or Jose Budo if he looked good. But the fact that Peterson, McGill, and Carrasco were all thrusted in and all three of them sucked, it was like, man, we yeah. got to pack this in right now. Really bad. I, and, and then you you hand that off to a bullpen where Robertson was was great up until them trading him, right? But outside of that, you got Rayleigh, Robertson – Adovino was okay, but I, I, there weren't a lot of arms that I really trusted in that bullpen either. So you're getting short starts, and then you're getting a bullpen that was a revolving door of a lot of different auditions and guys with four ERAs. So that that side of it was was tough too. 
But on the rotation side, if you told me Kodai Sanga would have a sub three and strike out 200 yeah. and the Mets would be this bad pitching wise before the season, I'd be floored is another one. It just shows you again, how difficult it is to, to predict and, and, and anticipate what's going to happen. But I thought Peterson and Carrasco stood out as, as, as big time disappointments. Of course, you know, Max Scherzer, you, you wanted to see more and, and he definitely is a massive disappointment, but there was some questions there. We, we weren't a hundred percent sure what Max Scherzer we were going to get this year, but the fact that Peterson and Carrasco were also unusable on top of that, you know, of course, the the Hall of Famer is is going to be a bigger disappointment. But I do think it really, really hurt, and it's not that far off when you consider Carrasco at a six eighty RA in in twenty starts. It's not like he had a six eighty RA and they only had him for eight starts, and they're like, all right, we'll go to someone else. They had to keep going with him. They had to keep doing it, even though it was a disaster. And it was the same thing with Peterson. He ended up settling in and wasn't the worst out of the bullpen at times, and got the ERA down to five. But he was honestly worse than that. Like there was a lot of times where he was looking just like Carlos Carrasco. So you have two guys that were like a a scheduled loss every time they took the bump. And then McGill at points wasn't much better. So yeah, I mean, the rotation at some points was literally just Kodai Sanga every fifth day. And that's all you had to really look forward to. And Verlander, you know, at least still holding his own. But yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah. The Just Baseball show officially does not know the Philadelphia Phillies. We had so Mm -hmm. many problems with them in 2022. They go to the World Series. Um, We had... 88 and a half as the preseason win total. They exceed that. They got to 90 wins. All three of us had the under 88 and a half. The the Phillies have our number, man. Um, What was your reasoning behind the under? Because I I tried to almost like revisit why I thought they could have gone under. And I, I guess it started with a Taiwan Walker and the back of that rotation. I did not think that Taiwan Walker was going to keep his head above water. He did. I like Ranger Suarez. I now love Ranger Suarez. If you told me Christopher Sanchez was going to throw 100 innings, I'd be like, who the fuck is Christopher Sanchez? Yeah. And he was awesome. Yeah. Also, Bryce Harper's a fucking animal. He had a 900 OPS in 126 games after having Tommy John surgery in November. Not October, yeah. November. He turned it around and was one of the better hitters in the National League this year across pretty much a full season. Um, I was just not expecting any of that to happen. So the fact that all of it happened, credit to the Phillies. I'll eat shit. Yeah, for me, it was the pitching. I I just really didn't feel great about the the pitching situation. Uh, When you look at Nola, who we – Again, I mean, he had a four five this year. I know he was awesome in the postseason and and looks like a really good piece now. But there was points during the season where we're like, yeah, and this is not looking good. This is kind of what we feared. Zach Wheeler, he didn't even throw that well for his standards up until the postseason. He had three six this year, but those weren't the guys I was worried about. You know, we we knew that at least Nolan Wheeler. We're going to hold it down and and be fine. And they honestly were worse, if you look at the numbers, than I thought they would be. Where I was nervous was, okay, what are you going to get from Ranger Suarez? Can he stay healthy? Can he stay on the bump? Taiwan Walker looked like a a guy that wasn't going to be reliable. And so if Walker wasn't reliable, as we talked about, to me, I saw two out of five spots in a rotation that I, I was extremely worried about. And I didn't know if the bullpen could sustain the same level of production that we saw you know, the year prior. And and I wouldn't say that they really did either. So some of the craziest thing about the Phillies is some of those concerns 
came to fruition. Like it wasn't like the, I think the bullpen ended up really just going nuts in the second half and and that really helped them. And then they had the nice stretch of starting pitching with, with Suarez coming back and Christopher Sanchez, I think it ended up being a huge X factor. What, the second I saw Christopher Sanchez was to be pitching meaningful innings and, you know, getting a start every fifth day. I was even more concerned about the Phillies and the fact that he ended up being a guy that turns into three, four, four. And if you look at qualified starters by just ERA, if you qualify them at minimum 80 innings, he had the lowest ERA of any starter on the team. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So it's just one of those years that just doesn't totally make sense. I was worried about the pitching. The pitching wasn't even that great. And they still were way better than we thought. So I will just be picking Phillies over for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think every like thought that I have on the Phillies, I'm just going to do the exact opposite. A, a couple of guys that performed better than yep. I was expecting offensively. Nick Castellanos, Alec Bohm, they they both played better than I was expecting, or they both hit better than I was expecting. The center field jolt from Johan Rojas, I know he was miserable in the postseason, but this guy hit 300 over 60 games, and they needed that so badly. Is it repeatable? I don't think so. No. Like, they're thankful for the run that he had, and I got to tip my cap to him for that run that he had because he played excellent center field defense, and again, he hit 300 over 60 games for them. Yeah. So yeah. you can't knock I, it. I think the the one side of it, too, that that really helped them, and, and you kind of touched on that, is the fact that pretty much every single player on this team either took a step forward or it somewhat repeated what they did the year before. You know, Harper, you end up kind of getting that repeat in production or pretty close to it that you always want from him. Uh, Schwarber, though it was a weird and bizarre and, and up-and-down season, he still kind of repeated it in the sense that he hit 47 home runs and that's what you pay him to do. Brandon Marsh takes that leap, which I think I thought Marsh was huge. An 829 OPS out of a guy like him you know, in terms of the speed and the defense and all the other things that you get. If, if he's hitting like that, if he's getting on base at a 372 clip, you're in great shape. And then for Castellanos to just not be horrible, right? right. You take a negative war player and then forget just getting back to, to replacement level, he was better than that. And through, through stints was really good. Uh, that helps a ton. And then Trey Turner, we were so excited about that, that acquisition and, and what he could maybe bring to the table. And he finally does over, over the second half. So yeah, now looking at it in hindsight, I have no idea why we all picked the under other than the pitching, but it just seems like this was another team that was kind of able to piece it together yeah. and somehow overcome some sporadic pitching. Uh, even though their pitching ended up being a strength for them down the stretch. And in two, three years, we're going to forget that Trey Turner was horrible going into the all-star break. Like, No, they'll never let us forget that because they're always going to credit the Phillies fans with the ovation that turned it around for Trey. We'll hear about that for a long time. I will say I'm a big Jalen Hurts guy. Like, Oh, he's the man. Yeah, he's the man. So like I'm I'm kind of buying into all these Philly athletes, except Embiid. I just cannot buy into Joel. It's not it, and I'm just it's just a credit to the fans. Like the, the sta- how many times do we have to hear about the standing O that they like yeah. the fact that they were able to create a situation where like they boo him so much that them doing the bare minimum, which is just like then cheering for the play their their own player, is like oh great job. It's like it's like if I'm really mean to you and then I'm just not mean to you. And like one day compliment you, it's like, wow, what a job complimenting him are. I'm like, that's crazy to me. But I don't know, isn't that a toxic workplace, right? Toxic workplace is like bad job, bad job, bad job. Good that's job. The, and then it's like, I want that again. Yes. Phillies fans are toxic, but they're manipulative. And, and it's amazing. <laughs> they successfully manipulated a player, that's that, which, which is them, great. They manipulate. Yeah. Uh, 
toxic, but it works. And Philly sports are awesome. And <laughs> I, I love Philly's fans. So I, it works. I, I, I think other fans need to start taking notice. Yeah. Note to employers. Toxicity works. Um, mm-hmm. The Marlins. I'm going to open the floor to you. Their over under was set at 76 and a half. They zoom past that eight over at 84 wins. Um, Peter had the under. You had the under. I had the over again. A win him. Jack and only Jack. I'm built different. Um, I thought that they were going to go over for entirely different reasons than they did. I will say that I'll expand on it later, uh, but I just want to open the floor to you. Why did they perform better than what MGM had them at? Bro, I got no clue. <laughs> no, I, I, there, there's actually part of me that actually has no clue, yeah. but if, if you want my most analytical and, and like honest answer, I think it was a decent bit of luck. Yeah. A decent bit of, positive regression, a decent bit of players taking strides and a little bit of Yuri Perez. And you kind of put that all together and you have this overperforming, exciting season. I I think if you really took the team at like what they're capable of and maybe take away a little bit of the one run luck or whatever it is, this is still a team that's far better than they were the year before. And I think that's a really important thing. And I think the other side of it, and it's frustrating to say now, and and, I feel bad for Marlins fans that have to like bring it up, but I do think that the moves that Kim Ang made were a big reason why the win total ended up going over because this was a team that in the first half, there was, there was so many things bouncing the right way. You have a a rookie manager that would make moves and it would work out perfectly and skip Schumacher at times. Um, You would just, you basically felt like they could come back in games. They would somehow nail down a save with AJ Puck standing on his. It just seemed like all of these things were not going to sustain. They go red hot into the all-star break. And then we remember how bad things were in the second half. I think if Kim Ang doesn't make any moves, this team limps to the finish line. They finish with a high 70 win total. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they still beat the Vegas over under, but they're not making the playoffs. They're not doing what they did. So I think it was almost this team overperforming. Kim realizing like, hey, this luck is starting to dwindle. Oh shit, our luck's running out. And she goes out and makes a couple big impact moves to go get a Josh Bell and go get a Jake Berger. Who like you talk about their numbers as Marlins, pretty remarkable. Um, I think that's what really ended up putting them over the top. You had luck, and then you improved the ball club yeah. and didn't let that luck fully go back down to the norm, if that makes sense. And you settle at eighty four wins. Uh, Yeah, I entirely agree with you on all of it. I think going into the season, the reason that I pegged over was I thought Sandy was just the best pitcher in baseball and he was going to do it again. Um, Thought Yuri Perez was going to show up and and be a serious contributor. I thought Jazz Chisholm was going to play a whole year and make that leap to superstardom in his video game cover year. And I thought there was a chance that Garrett Cooper played the entire year because if he plays 140, then like this guy can be productive enough. Literally one of those things happened. And it happened for 19 starts in Yuri. Like Sandy was very not good this year. We figured out he wasn't healthy. But the guys that I point to, and it's like, hey, why did they win 84 games? I tried to attack this from an individual basis. And I said, Braxton Garrett, Yuri Perez, Berger and Bell, Skip Schumacher, and Andrew Nardi and Tanner Scott. Like those those two, we got to give some credit to Nardi and Scott because like they were good all year. Puck was the best closer in baseball for the front two months. 
and then he fell off the face of the earth. David Robertson, after the trade, was the worst closer in baseball. If they don't have Nardi and Scott, they don't win these one-run games. Simply put. And they won so many one-run games. That that was going to be my my part too. Was I mean, you and I would just text about Nardi and Scott. I mean, we've talked about him them so much, just in terms of who would have thought that these two lefties, especially Nardi, a guy that you know we saw in Biloxi, like I'm pretty sure when we went out down there, he was pitching Not, in relief yeah. in double double A, you know, for the Marlins. And That's like this guy was one of the most break. <laughs> like, yeah, Nardi like, was our piss break in it. Yeah, literally, like I had, uh, yeah. Yuri's out. I don't care. All right. We're going to go. Yeah. Go, go to the bathroom. Like that literally was what it was. Like I had no, wasn't paying attention to him at all. Not yeah. really on my radar. He was good. And then once he got up to, to the, uh, the big leagues, I had a tweet, I think uh, two years ago when he was getting shelled uh, saying Nardi will be a good reliever for the Marlins. And I got dunked on by Marlins fans because he got shelled literally that day. And I was like, I'm telling you the stuff will play and whatever. And obviously I had to bring that one back up, but Nardi was one of the most used arms, right? You got 63 appearances from Nardi. It was 74 appearances from Tanner Scott. Those guys combining for 137 appearances for 100 and what would that be innings wise? 135, 45 innings. Do I have that right? 145 innings. Like that is remarkable. That's two lefties out of your bullpen combining for a full starters workload almost. And also being put in all of these high leverage situations. Tanner Scott, I thought was arguably the most valuable reliever in the sport. If you combine the leverage, usage, uh, just in terms of of how often he was going maybe four outs compared to some of these other guys like Josh Hader who refused to do it. Uh, I thought there was so many things about what both of those guys did that there's no way this team is sniffing the playoffs if it weren't for them. And then I love that you brought up Braxton Garrett because he could easily get, I think, overlooked. And and obviously when it looks, you look at a team – there's a bunch of different guys that, that contributed and helped. Uh, Lizardo taking that leap overall this year, I For think sure. obviously helped. But you were kind of hoping that. We were, we, we've talked about Lizardo being this guy. Braxton Garrett being a legitimate number three starter, like a legitimate big league three, was huge for them, especially in a year where they weren't filling out the rotation completely. That's why Yuri had to get fast tracks. I mean, that's why we saw Brian Hoeing make seven starts. And Johnny Cueto still end up being used for for 10 starts and 13 appearances like these were all things that were not really we were hoping wouldn't be the case after a month or two of the season so um i think braxton garrett has really proven himself to be a really reliable really steady arm and for for him to be able to give them a quality there were stretches where he was giving them more quality starts than ever anybody else every fifth day um and and that's uh, that's not something i was expecting by the way, Johnny Cueto had dinner next to him in the Dominican Republic in San Pedro. Um, he had a chilled bottle of champagne on ice next to him at a place that just does not do that. So shout out Johnny Cueto living his Love best him. life. Um, yeah, I mean, Braxton Garrett was awesome. Last guy that I wanted to ID. Also, I feel like we're contractually obligated to say Luis Arise. So shout yes. out Luis Arise for hitting 350. Jorge Soler playing 140 games. That was a difference maker for them. Soler had an 850 OPS in 140 games. They needed a middle of the order presence so badly. They got it from him. Yes. I'll say the last thing on that, they didn't have one guy hit for 20 home runs other than Jorge Soler. So the fact that he was able to hit them 36 bombs, right? You're looking at Jazz Chisholm at 19 and Brian De La Cruz at 19 for the, the next highest total. He gave them power they desperately needed up until adding, you know, Berger and Bell. 
is Jazz Chisholm a Marlin for the entire year this coming year? So from a pure baseball standpoint, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for the answer to be no. And I think Peter Bendix is maybe the most likely hire in terms of making him movable. Like Bendix is the type of guy to not give a shit. He was a Ray, right? Like he was the Ray's GM. He will trade you. He traded Blake Snell. Uh, like he'll do that. He's not, he doesn't care. So uh, that side of it's interesting, but also if you have your owner breathing down your neck saying, no, you can't trade him. Uh, we, like, when are we ever going to have an MLB, the, co- the show cover guy ever again? When are we ever going to have a player that's marketable? You can't trade him. I can see both sides of it, but from a pure baseball standpoint, I bet Bendix is very interested in doing that. So it's just a matter my, of whether his owner will allow him to, I think. My other question is like, what, what about like, try and take me into the mind of Bruce Sherman, the owner. What about jazz is like appealing to be, He's not playing. That's so He's not playing. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think there's a certain tipping point where it's like, okay. And I think Bruce is getting there where he wants to win. I think I think you're seeing that through what happened with Kim. I mean, he just wants to to change things and he he wants to figure out the player development side. And he's starting to get a little uneasy, which is good and bad because when you're still not willing to fully open the wallet, that could just result in a lot of overmanaging. And we saw that with with Loria. So I hope it's not like that. But um, yeah, I mean, what is Jazz giving you at this point? And you know, there's been questions about some of the aspects of his availability and and whether some of that could have been helped by you know, how how he works to make himself available. Ethic, so like yeah. those are all things that I know he started to pick up on at the end of the season. They talked about that, you know, him getting there earlier, doing more maintenance for his body, training a little bit harder and doing different things. But, you know, I don't know if Jazz Chisholm is a face of the franchise kind of guy. I think he's a really fun uh most entertaining face of the franchise, but in terms of leading your team and leading a new era and an org, I could understand if the Marlins felt like he might not be that guy for them. Uh, and I just wonder what that, what his value is. Cause it's, it's, it's a really interesting case. I still feel like it would be sky high. Yeah. I just think a team so depraved of offense, they got to roll the dice and hope that, jazz can give them a healthy 162 but the reality is if he can't give them 140 next year i don't i don't think he ever is this is last chance for jazz i do think yeah to to, to shake off the kind I'm of Buxton type of, yeah 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 or the eagle white type of label where he's gonna be good you'll still get a couple war out of him but he's not a star that's gonna play enough to to be someone that you can build around okay is byron buxton a star He's capable of being a star. He'll give you stretches of stardom, but he's I'm not a star. Out that on you... the star thing, he's not yeah, a star. He's not. He he's not. He's like not a star. Years. He's not a star that you build around. He's a star talent, and I think that's what Jazz is heading towards. That's crazy. Like Jazz and Buxton, man. I just can't call them stars. Uh, last one is Washington. Washington. The over under was set at fifty nine and a half. Fifty nine and a half. They had them losing what one hundred and three games. 71 is where they got. So that is 12 better than what MGM had him at. Peter went under 59 and a half. Yeah, what? <laughs> I, I don't remember this too much. I, actually, I actually do. It's starting to come back to me. <laughs> Literally, as I, said, I don't remember. I remember Peter just going through, the, doing the thing where he reads the entire lineup and he's like, you think this team's winning 60 games? <laughs> and like, I hear him on that. We're, the guys we're going to talk about, I don't think we totally expected to do what they did. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, you know, I thought that they were going to be a 70 win team. I just thought that the number was too low. I yeah, just I thought they were going to go 62 and 100 if we're being totally honest. 
Yeah, we said, and I think, again, it's coming back to me. I think we just said, this isn't the Oakland A's. And Peter's like, yeah, it is. It might be. <laughs> like, yeah, and we were like, no, dude, that number's too low. <laughs> and I kind of hear him like it wasn't that far off. But there was just too many pieces that were capable of not being terrible. Right. Compared to a lot of pieces in Oakland where it was like, what are you even dreaming on there? Right. There, there were certain guys where it's just like, you knew what you were getting at best. With, with Washington – you could dream on a little bit, right? We could dream on what C.J. Abrams could give them, and he ended up giving them a really good season, especially in the second half. Yep. We could dream a little bit on, you know, what they could get from Elaine uh, Thomas because we saw flashes at the end of this last year, and he gave them a really good season. I think those sides of it were, were interesting. We could dream a little bit on Mackenzie Gore. He wasn't consistently awesome, but shit, Oakland would have killed for a Mackenzie Gore last year. So things like that, I think, really – help the Nationals fight out of the the league's basement. For sure. So my thought going into it, I guess, was, you know, we were under the assumption that Joey Manessis and C.J. Abrams could net positive in this lineup. I wasn't sure that Lane Thomas was going to net positive, but he was way more than netting positive. Lane Thomas was a great player this year for, for them. Relatively speaking, he was a great player for them. Overall, he was a good player. Dominic Smith was not a DFA candidate reliability. Dom Smith was worth having in the lineup for the entire year. Again, different. Candelario being there before the deadline was huge for them. They won a ton of games when Jamer was playing his ass off. And the guy for me was Josiah Gray. Ship yeah. was like leaving the port on Josiah Gray for me before this year. And now it's back and I'm boarding. I think this guy, yeah. I don't think he's a low threes, but I think this guy can give you a mid to high threes and 30 starts. Not on a year-in, year-out basis, but a 3-9, I think that is, that shouldn't be the expectation, but I think he, he's he got that in the tank. When going into this year, I did not think that he had that in the tank because his fastball was getting freaking annihilated before this year. I mean, there were stretches where he was like one of those guys where if if I was looking to like place a bet, you know, for on a baseball game. Yeah. I'm it's, looking at the MGM lines. I'm seeing, oh, Grace pitching. I'm, I'm fading him. Like yeah. there was points where it was a guaranteed three to four home runs every, every outing. It was because that fastball was getting racked. I, I loved Gray as a prospect and it was really surprising to see him struggle last year. I mean, when you go from giving up the most home runs in, in, in major league baseball and the most, I think walks in, in the national league to the numbers that you just mentioned and being a really serviceable starter, like being a, a, a mid three, to high threes guy on a horrible team goes a really long way. Cause usually those horrible teams don't even have one of those guys or have one at best. Um, but I really think CJ Abrams was a big X factor for this team too, because he set the tone in a lot of ways. Um, they're just being able to give them a little bit of power second on the team in home runs, but then also being one of the best base dealers in the sport, improving defensively. And if you remember, uh, I think we talked about him, when I wrote that piece kind of breaking down that second half breakout for him. Um, and and if, if you haven't seen that, you can check that out at just baseball.com. If you search, uh, I think if you search CJ Abrams, you'll be able to find it. But what I thought was interesting about it was Abrams has that huge second half. And that was after Candelario was shipped out. So he took over that kind of main guy in the order and that consistent production piece outside of Lane Thomas. And I think kind of really replaced what was Candelario's production in the second half. And then, dude, Lane Thomas played like an all-star. 28 homers, 20 bags. I know that the war wasn't totally there, and that's probably because of the defense, but 
I mean, he had a really nice season through stretches and, you know, they they just pieced it together and were serviceable. Stone Garrett also gave them a really good 89 games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, I, I look at this team, I look what they have coming into this year, and if, if it's set at 65, like, that's a very hard one for me to pick. But 59 and a half, that, that felt way too low. And I'm glad that they proved that it was way too low because – there are some exciting guys and there are some exciting guys coming, you know, through the system. Um, There aren't many, but James Wood, very exciting. There are, you know, a couple of pitchers that could pop out. Now Dylan Cruz will get there quick. (laughs) He'll get get there. Brady house might get there quick and house had a great year in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's enough to be excited about as opposed to the Oakland situation where it's like, oh my God, is this ever going to get better? Oakland yeah. and Kansas City are the two that I look at, and I'm like, are we sure this is going to get better? Washington, I do see a path to them being a 500 team, which yeah. like is not good, but uh, it's a lot better than the Oakland and KC situation. You you don't you don't have to change the channel when it comes on, right? Like there, there's nothing worse than when just the team is so unwatchable that you just don't. You'd rather just watch a different game or just watch a different sport. And I really only on. think there's one team like that in major league baseball right now. Cause Kansas city, like I want to watch Bobby Wood jr. Play baseball. hundred really percent. And when, when Vinny's healthy, I want to watch Vinny and yeah, no doubt. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that team. I think Oakland's really the only one where I don't give it a shit at all. Um, and the white Sox might be there uh, when we start the season. The, the last thing I'll say on the Nats too, is I think there's better days ahead because Look, I know they're not going to spend with the best of them, but they've shown to be more than comfortable giving out some of these big deals. They have they've gone horribly, and I think they might make them a little bit more apprehensive. But they're still. It doesn't mean that they're going to go from spending. You know, they shelled out three hundred and eighty-five million dollars for Pat Corbin and Steven Strasburg. Bad deals. It doesn't mean they're never going to spend again. I don't know what the financial situation is going to end up looking like with Strasburg, given all of the things that are going on. But even the end of that deal is in twenty twenty-six. Uh, so you back go to deal, you're probably fine. Pat Corbin's on the final year of his deal. And I know the Nationals are very excited about that. $35 million in 2024, then cleared off the books. They really don't have any other financial commitments outside of $5 million to Kubert Ruiz and arbitration on other guys. So I think the young players are going to start to be up there at that point. And then we're going to see the Nationals finally be able to reinvest some money and, and go get some pieces. And I expect them to be good by 2026. I expect them to probably be good by 2025 and at least be a, a pretty competitive and, and fun team. Are you ready for the uh, I'm coming home music video of Juan Soto when he signs his $500 million? Oh, deal my gosh. It, it's the LeBron thing. He, he goes away. He grows up. He comes back and he wins one for his city. That's the Soto. Could thing. you imagine? Could you imagine if that happened without him? So the, the fact that he would just be traded in hit free agency and then sign with the team that basically he thought he'd never go back to because they didn't think that they could extend him like that, that in itself amazing. would be the, I think one of the best things that could happen in baseball bounces to two different teams that thought they might extend him never did in the Padres and whoever else he gets traded to and then settles right back in Washington. I would love that, but they seem to, they seem to always just extend or sign the wrong guys. And correct. Correct. Um, it's I, never going to happen. Will, but it would no. be the best baseball spin zone ever if Juan Soto oh. was in a lineup with C.J. Abrams, James Wood, and if Hassel can figure it out, Hassel, and you got Mackenzie Gore in that rotation. To, to get an all-time package because you couldn't extend a guy, and then he hits free agency, and then you sign him, 
Yeah, that would be one of the best moments it, in, in baseball. That is Chapman being on the same roster yeah. as Glaber Torres on crack. Yeah. Like yeah. Chapman and Glaber Torres being on the same team made Cubs fans pull their hair out moving forward. But they won the World Series, so it's okay. Um, yep. All right. I think that's it, right? That was uh, that was the NL East. We're going to have the NL Central for you on Wednesday, NL West on Friday, and then American League next week. I think it'll be Peter and I on Wednesday. Uh, what do we got going? Great stuff and an exciting um, card-centric announcement on the call-up coming this yeah. week, which is great. Yeah, for our card folks out there, definitely check out stuff on the call-up. We're going to be Working with Tops to be highlighting Bowman 2023 draft, which is coming out in December. So if you're looking for stuff to add to your Christmas list, definitely go check that out. But um, I'm going to tell you what cards to go after, everything about the product that you need to know. And uh, we're just excited to be doing these Tops sports card prospects related kind of segments on the call up. So look out for that. And a lot of really fun stuff on the prospects front there as well. Really good interview with Victor Scott, who was a blast Cardinals prospect who stole 95 bases. One of the more insightful conversations I've had. So, uh, yeah, check out the call up for a lot of fun stuff. And then editorially, the Just Baseball team is crushing. Yes. Absolutely crushing uh, the offseason and getting you primed up for winter meetings, free agency, potential trades, anything and everything you need to know that could happen, has happened, or we think will happen is being covered right now on JustBaseball.com. Yep. College football playoff. Give it to me and then we'll say bye. I think, I think everybody's slightly vulnerable this year uh but what four teams what four teams would be michigan would be georgia okay it would be who am i missing could ohio state still sneak in there they could uh winner of the i think florida state florida state okay and then winner of the pac-12 ew um yeah so washington you think florida state you think washington's gonna beat oregon again yes Wow. Okay. Um, and then you think Florida State's going to beat Louisville in the ACC championship without Travis? Yes. And I also think that if you base a decision on the playoff predicated on the fact that they don't have their starting quarterback, the, the Ohio State precedent has made us unable to do that ever again because Jones. you had the starter down, you had the backup down, you had the third string down. We said, what the hell are we going to get for Cardale Jones? They won the natty. So you can't ever pretend to know what to expect from an 18 or 19 year old. Um, I'm I'm all the way in on, on them being able to go. And if the Seminoles are able to go, they're going to find a way to win that game against Louisville. They looked like crap this past week. Uh, I know that FSU didn't look great either, but Louisville just lost. I They're not playing for much anymore. I, I think, I think FSU is, going to be able to figure it out all right every other link you need is in the episode description and we will talk to you on wednesday